Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would uh, you'd like to listen to this please spread the word uh, however you can i am on social media if you would like to follow me i am on instagram at detox pod guy uh, my twitter is on hiatus for a little bit it will come back but it is tis mike joseph feel free to follow me on either of those platforms there is also facebook.com slash detoxicity and if you have a comment you can email me detoxpod at gmail.com I am always on the lookout for new guests, so if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms, and certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast, please reach out, let me know. Once again, I thank you for listening. Michael Logan is a veteran musician and touring professional. Currently, he's on the road with the band Little Feet. I met Michael through a support group for music industry employees, and not only did we have an instant connection, we quickly realized we lived barely a mile from one another in Brooklyn. He was an early candidate for a detox episode, but we spent so much time actually becoming friends that recording an episode kept getting pushed aside, till now. The COVID-19 pandemic gave Michael a reason to pump the brakes and assess what was really important to him, and after decades of living the rock and roll lifestyle with all the good and the bad that that entails, what stood out to him was the need for personal growth. During our conversation, we discussed why taking a break from the action allowed him to get a better idea of what he wanted out of life. We talk about not allowing yourself to be consumed by your own ego, and we talk about staying positive in a negative world. Uh, Michael is one of my favorite humans walking this earth, and I hope that after this, he'll be one of yours too. So check it out. My name is Michael, in some circles known as the Bull, like Bull in a China Shop. That's my musician side. I am multi-instrumentalist, adore music. It's pretty much everything for me. Uh, I'm also a production professional I'm working uh, in live events, but specifically in the music industry. And I wear multiple hats there, all sorts of management positions and technician positions. And as I like to refer to it, I just give me the ball coach and whatever it is to, to, to land it. Years ago, it was definitely credit driven and stature and building a uh, professional resume. And uh, now it's just, I'm just happy to be on the team no matter what part I'm playing. So um, just adding to the overall lift of a show to get the show to do what it does in its best form, which is create magic and transform some people's lives. So that's what I'm about. The first thing I ask people after they talk about what they do is what brought you into whatever it is that you do. So not necessarily being a musician, but being on the production end of stuff, being mm -hmm. on the more technical end of stuff, where did that come from? That came from my mother, I would suppose, back when I was somewhere around eight, nine years old. 
We would go do uh, Summerstock uh, Theater, which would buy tickets for the season, eight to ten shows. Every week or every other week there was another show. And it was at the local high school, and I was always in amazement when the uh, curtain closed and when the curtain opened again, how the stage was complete, completely transformed. And uh, what happened there, and it was so beyond my eight or nine-year-old intelligence to understand it, but to me it was magic, and it was transformative, and it was a portal to somewhere else, and I can distinctly remember that being super effective, like what the hell's going on every time that that curtain closed. So that's probably the genesis somewhere around there. Always being uh, amazed by uh, the business of show, as it were. So it's funny, as you're talking, a random fact I know about you popped into my head, (laughs) and you were a puppeteer? (laughs) Good callback, yes. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, how does one become a puppet? You might be the only person that I know that has ever been at any point in their career a puppeteer. Yeah, and I did it for two years or so, I think. Maybe two and change. So, back to theater. I was doing front of house audio for a local production of Little Shop of Horrors. And there's the plant Audrey 2, which was a puppet. Yes. I was entranced by the puppeteering of that guy. It was a gentleman named Bill Diamond. He has his own line of puppets uh, called the Stuffins Puppets. And uh, they were up in Westchester for quite a bit. And uh, he ran a whole uh, TV studio and did a lot of local programming with these puppets, kid shows and adventure shows and things of that nature, plus uh, live shows. So I was amazed by Audrey too, or the many stages of Audrey, where it's like a handheld plant and the actor is actually the puppeteer to when Audrey 2 starts to grow during the show and gets bigger and bigger and the forms of how the puppetry had to change to eventually its biggest form, which is there's a whole human in there operating this gigantic head and dancing and singing and being a personality. So the inner workings of how that was was very intriguing to me. And I was good at what I did. And he was interested in my ability and my gumption of it, I suppose, and we got to talk in. And he invited me to come check it out, and then it was uh, the next two years. I actually ended up being somewhat of a protege of his, learning how to actually build all the puppets. I had a unique ability to mimic a lot of voices, particularly his voices. So as my puppetry skill climbed and my puppet building and just all of that whole realm, other guys that I was working with were working maybe the video end or the sets making end and like that. I was pretty much right next to him creating the puppetry and eventually... He started handing off the characters to me so that he can get behind the director chair and not have to puppeteer and direct at the same time for the video shooting and the programs that we were making. And eventually I took over all of his uh, puppets, including a, I want to say he was 13 or 14 foot tall dragon <laughs> named Stuffy, who was his premier character. He was gigantic and and yeah, and eventually I learned how to work that. And it's a sweet spot of my past. I'm glad you brought it up. Actually. <laughs> it's intriguing to me because... I've not known anyone in my entire life that, that's that been a puppeteer before, so I'm just kind of like, what's that like? Yeah, it was largely hand and rod puppets or full body puppets, not really marionettes at all. So it was uh, certain techniques that I learned from him, because your hands are above your head most all the time, you're controlling movement of the mouth of the character through your hand, and that's got to be above your hand, constantly building up your forearms, and it's very exhausting work. One of the tricks that I learned earlier on, you know those um, hand grabbers to like strengthen your hand grip? Mm-hmm. We would do that and hold a quarter in there and and put it above our, head, our heads and 
as long as we can do it and endurance. And so needless to say, I got very strong arms at that time and had ability with them too. He was friends with the Henson family. Mm -hmm. And so I was very blessed to get down to Sesame Street at some point to get to Henson and Associates to learn actually some late character building. Like you would see something in like uh, Labyrinth or Dark Crystal those types of latex puppets so I, I learned some of the technique from there as well so uh, yeah blessed period it's, it's pretty life. rad it, it's cool to be a puppet particularly in front of a live audience where you're getting a live reaction you know it's not too far away from acting or being a stand-up comic or something of that nature it's cool to embody that and particularly as most puppets tend to be driven towards kids you just see a kid react especially when you're like a 13 foot tall dragon you can <laughs> zoom on down to about two to three feet where they're at and just see that face light up and goes back to that magic I was telling you about. That thing you can't quite put your finger on, but you're touching somebody's life in a very special way at that moment. What is it about being a performer that appeals so much to you? What is it about being in front of people? Even as a tech and, and doing the, the behind-the-scenes work that you do, you're still running out in front of people. Let me reword that question a little okay. bit. Are you one of those people who gets a rush out of being in front of people you can't not if you're doing it correctly at the end of the day as a performer and even in the production end i mean it's become into my consciousness in the last couple of years that what we really do is we channel energy more than anything else we are shapeshifters and energy channelers so when you're dealing with energy you're going to get a rush it's as simple as uh static electricity something sure. unexpected where it's like oh well, and there it is and, and you're alive and you're a thing so to perform I grew up on, on both ends I guess I grew up first as a performer on stage doing plays as a kid all the way through singing in church choirs folk groups all sorts of that and then in high school I started dipping into the behind the scenes uh, work and enjoyed the production work as well so to get to a point in which you're performing at its best it's meditative and you get to a point where you're not thinking you're just doing Mm. and it's just flowing through you and it goes back to what i was saying if is if you can channel that energy in such a way that it makes someone pause even for a brief moment just to be here now and to have that connectivity with another human that rush is worth all of it. I mean, when I was younger, for sure, it was look what I can do and check out this trick and did I impress you? But, you know, as years has gone on and I've gotten more into the craft and, and dropped a lot of ego, I see it very differently now. And it's, it's gotten back to that eight, nine-year-old kid, that eight, nine-year-old Michael that was just as taken with the magic without understanding it. And that's all I keep getting back to now is just like, that was the most purest state and it was the most right state of my being. And so to kind of go through the arc of a human and to come to this point of just turning the big five zero this year, there's some reflection. Of course, everything with Coviticus has made us reflect and reflect and reflect. So to look if at... If you're doing it right, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Not everybody. You're right. You know, if, if you're working at trying, it's certainly been a time to think. And now that I look at it and to boil things down to basics, and it's just like, yeah, man, I just want to just be a helpful part in creating something larger than myself to touch someone to either make them forget about something that they're unhappy with to inspire them to do something 
or just to please them in some manner, just that, wow, that was good. If it could stick in their mind at some point a week later when they're not having a great day, and they're like, mm. man, that show last week was really cool. And when that thing happened at that point, man, I don't know if I'll forget that. Just to be part of that very long, not example, uh, the summation of all the parts, you know, mm. the, the hell is it? Math. Um, oh, you're asking me about math? I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that, you know, that, that, <laughs> that I could play a part in that to, to bring to a great moment. And in some ways, this goes back to what we were talking about before we came online here, when we were talking about Cirque du Soleil and all their amazing abilities and their acrobats and the, the stunning visuals that go on. So much of art is reflective of the human spirit trying to break boundaries, right? Mm. At the mm. end of the day. And when you see something like a Cirque show or, or something incredible, or even just a musician, and it can be as big as with an orchestra, a quartet band, or just a solo human with a single instrument or no instrument, you know, just acoustic Mahalia Jackson, that is some channeling energy. Uh, and she is reaching to her God and what she feels and trying to connect and getting past this human form. That's what it's about. I guess I've always known it, but I haven't been able to articulate it until the last few years. So I guess to answer your question, do I get a rush? Without question. At the end of the day, why am I doing it? What is it? It's to achieve something better than the day-to-day. For yourself or for other people or for, both? For everyone. When I was younger, I used to be for myself. And now it's just like trying to create an environment in which everybody can share because of how energy flows that no matter what, if you're giving, you're receiving, as long as you're on both ends of them, that cyclical nature of human interaction and, and human emotion and human contact. And that's really all that matters, I think. Which is a very mature perspective. It took a while to get here. <laughs> yeah, because I know what it's like to stand in front of a crowd. And I can empathetically relate to what it is like for people that have a much bigger reach than I do to stand in front of a crowd. And I would have to imagine that if I had musical talent and I stood in front of a crowd, there'd be a bit of a a worry. And even with the things I do on a very minor scale, there's a bit of a worry that that will go to my head and I will feel omnipotent in a way. And... You see it with famous people all the time when they stand in front of people and sort of make their magic and it goes to their head and they start feeling like they're godlike. Mm-hmm. How do you keep that from happening? And I'm not, maybe not you specifically, actually, you specifically, because you can only speak to you specifically. Sure. How do you make that not happen? How do you not let the applause and the feeling that you have infiltrated somebody's? feelings like you've infiltrated somebody's psyche how do you not let that get to your head how do you not let it make you feel like you're better than you are not an easy question two things pop into my head a quote from chris robinson of the black crows that i heard many years ago and i guess part of his process when he got past his 20 something rock stardom and that band being catapulted to the front of the line as deservingly so once he kind of got his wits about him a bit more he had made a mention that we're all just part of one great song. And I always thought that was a really beautiful way to put it, and it made complete sense to me that, you know, 
this is going on. Life will come and life will go and people will come and people will go. But this song, this energy, this music soothing, soothing the savage, savage beast, beast, you yeah. know, that whole idea of bringing it down to cavemen days and banging on a hollowed log. It's part of the human experience. It's part of what needs to happen. So knowing your place in that, that so many have come before you and so many will come after you. Mm. And not that I'm a big star or anything of that nature, but to know your place in that and to know that you're contributing to, again, this sense of greater than yourself, this art form that has given me so much. I'm overwhelmed to only give it back in the best way that I can. So there's that. The other part, I mean, it's it's some heady, heady stuff. Heady. It can easily go that route. Ego is a bitch, and ego <laughs> will sabotage you. Ego is good in some, I find, small doses at correct times, but living on the go is no way to be. So how do you manage that? For lack of a better analogy, it's like looking Medusa in the eye, right? You know that something's going on there. There's a tremendous thing happening but if you look it into the eye you'll turn to stone right Mm -hmm. so for me personally words matter to me and when i am on the receiving end of beautiful language that is specifically towards me or some art or some production i've just been part of i become humbled very quickly because the thing i was looking to do happened I made someone pause. I made someone feel something, think something, experience something. So I immediately default to humble, and it's an awkward state for me, and I usher it along in an expedient manner. I wouldn't say hasty, but it's like, thank you, and there'll be certain words that might happen that I'll savor for a brief moment. But I kind of push it aside, like, I'm just glad that you're here with the show, and it's all honest. But if I were to look Medusa in the eye, if I were to sit there and let someone shine light on me and just bathe in it full on and not want to get out of that bath, that's dangerous territory as far as I'm concerned. Because it's a sweet feeling when somebody's like, you're the shit. It is a sweet feeling. It is awesome. To me, I, I can only speak for myself. If somebody says something nice about me, I want to be like a dog in, in a pile of pig shit. And just, like, roll around in it. Yeah, exactly. But there's a battle, right? And in my head, it's always like, Mike, you're not that good. Or this is just something somebody's saying. It's completely subjective. But I do think that for a lot of people, they hear that shit enough times. And then you get to a level where you are so adored or so liked that everybody around you is kind of a sycophant. And you can push people that have anything critical to say out of the picture. Very much so, yeah. So all you get is that feedback loop of you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome. Mm-hmm. And it makes your head explode with that rolling in shit feeling and that is when things turn bad. It's like, like inflating the ball. You're awesome, pump, pump, pump. Right. And that's one of the tremendous pitfalls in the music industry specifically. How many fantastic artists have we seen crash and burn if they're lucky to be able to resurrect themselves through rehabilitation or several? But how many die flat out early before their time, before they're able to achieve like even better greatness? Or thinking John Lennon getting arbitrarily assassinated out of nowhere one day. Right. It's like he still had more to say, more to do. Right. You know, people, admiration and adulation, I think, are as potent as a drug as any other. So... 
I guess to get back to what your question is, how do I manage that? At first, I just used to kind of push it to the side. Thank you, push it to the side. Thank you, push it to the side, humble, keep on going through. Like, I don't feel comfortable with those words that you're sharing with me. But I do feel like I did something good back there, and it's good to hear that someone's acknowledging that. In the last few years, I've gone through a tremendous amount of personal change, very targeted, very intentional. I was looking to shake off a lot of the bad behavior that... Um, <laughs> I had going on for a long period of time and in order to do that I had to make some significant changes. I started uh, a journey through my own mental health and wellness first as as a person as a patient as a client trying to understand and once I was able to get some of that under my belt along with all sorts of things that I think inevitably go back to a mindfulness practice whether that is yoga whether that is meditation whether that's a gratitude practice all of those roads lead back to just being mindful and being mindful is simply being present. And the more I become mindful and the more I become present, the more I've worked on my past demons and tried to exercise a lot of them out. The more I, I mean, I'm currently changing. I'm currently in this state of allowing myself to accept the applause and the adulations and the admirations. And for our listening audience, I recently had a tremendous opportunity bestowed upon me and I got a chance to work with the legendary band Little Feet and in a production capacity and that ended up with me working with them in a performance capacity. And I played a couple of songs in front of an audience of several hundred people and the reaction was overwhelming. And I hadn't experienced that type of that many people being that dialed into what I was doing. And it was an ocean. It was an ocean of wave, of sound, of gratitude, and of just, to overuse the word, energy. I mean, it was just people screaming at you and a lot of them at once over something you just did. Right. And I hadn't experienced that for a couple of decades. I was blessed early on in my career to, to play in some festivals with some other artists that I've worked with. Inevitably, I always end up doing production, and then word leaks out that I'm also a musician, and then eventually I end up playing with a lot of the people I work with. So I hadn't had it in, in decades, and I was conscious in that state because of my mindfulness uh, practice, because of my change, because of working hard at getting rid of ego, or at least lessening it. Even while I was doing it, I was probably some of the most aware I had been in the split brain mentality where it's like I'm completely aware from a show production standpoint what the hell is going on right now and what my sound is like and what I can hear and what the band's doing and playing off of that and then I'm in a complete performance mode where I'm not thinking about the licks I'm going to play or the riff I'm going to play or what I'm going to say through my instrument, in this case, harmonica, in this case, but I am just literally starting to speak through my instrument without thinking. So it's this two-sided brain thing happening at one point. And I've had inklings of that in my past different points of my career, but now I have to attribute it to the work of the last uh, couple of years that I was so present that when I finished with the solo and the applause came back at me, I just kind of paused and allowed that wave to hit me. And there's some video footage of this, and you can literally see me go, wow, because <laughs> it was such a big push of energy. 
And that got to a point where the song went on and I was about to, to step off the, the show because they were segueing into another tune that I wasn't playing on. Mm-hmm. So I was about to step off and the audience realized that it was the end of my time and there was another outpouring of affection and appreciation. And I thought to myself, well, do I acknowledge the audience and turn around and bow? Not my gig, not my band. Also, that feels a little much. Exactly. And so, again, the consciousness and the, and the mindfulness and the presence was just like, this is going on. How are you going to react? And come here to do the job you did. Go back to, <laughs> go back to your production world. This was a good moment. And because the heat was coming on so much from the audience, I, I threw my hand in the air at the very end, which got another little raise of, which was awesome. But it was good because I, I did not not want to recognize what they were doing and, and to be like, be dismissive dismissive not gracious because right. they don't have to applaud me right. at all to not acknowledge i feel like would have felt ungrateful i felt the same and it was just complete instinctual like i wasn't even thinking about it. I was like just walk off and i'm walking off and just before i'm like two steps off of the exit wing just to just fucking throw your hand yeah, up or something like you know i wasn't even thinking it was just like the hand went up yeah. and they got it and i got it and they understood i mean i'm not part of the show i'm not part of the band but Man, wasn't that a beautiful moment? And and didn't that elevate the room and the band and the energy? It was like taking something that was already fucking cooking right. and just ticking it up Turn just it a up few a little more knots. Yeah, 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 I get that. And you also led me to the next part of the conversation, which is how we met, which was yeah. in a support group for people that work in music. And... You shared with me a fair amount of your journey. One thing that maybe we didn't talk about or I just don't remember is was there a tipping point? Was there a point when you were like, Michael, or was it just a gradual dawning of, hey, I got some work to do on myself and maybe I need to lessen some habits and try to jump into some more better habits like some people get to a point where somebody pulls them aside and is like yo bro you gotta get your shit together and they're like oh i gotta get my shit together i'm gonna do this now and for some people it's more of a gradual self-awareness thing for other people it's more of a gradual combination of self-awareness and word from others what was your journey to bettering yourself a uh, combination of the, of the two. I come from a uh, rather storied and unique background with an upbringing. Life situations were very dramatic in my house at a very young age, and it was put upon me to mature at a rapid rate, to which I did because I was young and I didn't understand anything any better. I'm like, well, this is what has to happen, so... As per norm, I, you know, deliver. That's what it is. Like, well, this is where it's at. Can you make that happen? Yeah, I can make that happen. That is not to say that that growth period and the years that followed were not extraordinarily difficult. They most definitely were, and there was a lot of childhood trauma tied up in there. Maturing at a rapid rate early on did help me to understand that things were not average or normal as to a run-of-the-mill uh, American suburban lifestyle. Okay. That what I was dealing with was a little bit outside the box because I didn't know anybody who was dealing with that. I was dealing with multiple factors that individually were 
challenging and as a trio were overwhelming. But at that time, I didn't understand it. And it's only the work I've done in the last couple of years that have gotten me to really see how overwhelming that was and, and what an impossible, impossible task I was being put to. So there was a bit of consciousness there. There was mental illness in my family. And I knew just from DNA code that, well, that could possibly be in me too. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So I was always aware of being aware. And self-reflection, as much as that was possible, in between bouts of fear, anxiety, drowning them with substances and behaviors for years. So... And, you know, careers for that matter. There's something to be said about being on the road and touring. Not for everybody. <laughs> and for the people that it is for, it, in a lot of ways, can be a solve. A, I know that when I got on the road, I felt like I was at home. All of a sudden, having, even never having been there. But it was just like, this is everything I need. And now that I'm back on the road, it's a very different scene. At that time, it was complete freedom. Complete and other freedom. I came into my own. I always knew I was and this and you know, played along with this and that and and some societal things and and bad choices like mullets back in the late <laughs> well, 80s. I mean, um, look, that's a bad choice that a lot of people made. Exactly. In the name of fashion. Yeah. Something different, you know, those things kind of conforming with what everybody else is doing. I guess I should do this too. Yeah. Trying to appease, but never really being fully myself. And when I got on the road, there's something to be said about being in a place for under 24 hours that is very liberating. So I felt like I really became into myself at that point. But at that time, behaviors and, and substances being in the mix and being a younger man with a lot more energy and a lot more anger that I didn't quite understand, but I knew was there and was always under the surface. There's a lot of uh, avoidance and a lot of deferring that went on for years. And then when I was off the road and when I was in one place for a period of time, that would be replaced with those same types of behaviors plus work and just flooding, taking on too much and doing. And, and production work in general is very difficult to manage. A lot of it is freelance work, so you have to be your own advocate. There are very little unions. I've never been part of one. It's a tough gig. The days on average are 14 to 18 hours. You are expected to perform at your best all the time in an ever-changing environment, regardless of any outside input you have to deliver X, Y, or Z on point all the time. So there's a great ability to lose yourself in the work, there's a, in the lifestyle. So years passed and decades passed. And then you're kind of like, well, I know there's this thing I should probably deal with. And when you're alone in your heart of hearts, you're broken. There, there's things you're not doing that you want to do that you still can't get yourself to do right. There's, there's self-sabotage. Very familiar with that. <laughs> I mean, and I'm doing this thing and everything's going good. And yeah, why don't I just shoot a hole in the boat right, right. now? Because that seems like a right. good fucking Shit's idea. Shit's going too well. I, there's got to be some kind of fuck up. So yeah. why don't I just engineer and, and if you're not engineering it, you're thinking about, well, shit's going really well. When's the other shoe going to drop? Mm -hmm. Well, now you're not manifesting that. Mm -hmm. And essentially engineering it subconsciously. Mm -hmm. So that goes on, man. And that goes on for decades where it's like, one day I'm going to have to do this thing. One day I'm going to have to deal with this. One day I'm going to have to fix this. One day when everything calms down, when it's quieter. And maybe for other people's lives, but working in show business doesn't allow for things to be quiet. 
it never gets quiet. Right. Show business aside, I feel like there is a tendency to procrastinate just in humanity. Yes. Particularly when dealing with issues that are difficult. Like, I'll put that surgery off. Uh, Exactly. I'll call a therapist next month. I'll do all that stuff later. It's not the right time yet. But when you're uncomfortable, when situations come up that are uncomfortable, I'll call the divorce lawyer next year. I'll do whatever it is. That's right. You always want to take the easiest way out. And I'm not saying that as an indictment. That is just human nature. That is human nature. Human nature. Yeah. And to spin on that, if I may pivot this back to you, as we're talking about... You, it ain't about me. No, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm not going to go that deep. I won't put you on the spot. Uh, but I will talk about what this podcast is. And as a man, it's very easy to put shit off. And statistics show that men you know, will deal with health issues long before they'll go and get help. And what You're a God popular made. man. It is human nature, and it's even more exacerbated by being a male, I feel, in American or Western society. Mm-hmm. So that said, years will turn into decades, and and you think you got a hold on it. And in my case, I guess it was always the intention. I don't guess. I know it was always the intention to find that time. But even when I had that time, I would miraculously find something to crowd that time with so I could mm-hmm. avoid it, right? And it just got to a point where... It was over the course of about three, four weeks where I started slowly breaking and breaking down. And I was, again, freelance with this work, and so I make my own schedule, and I'm my own boss, which is great and freedom and liberating, but also I live and die by my own sword. And there would be afternoons in which I'd be working from my home office and would be home alone, and I wouldn't feel like I wanted to do this or that, and then would just kind of drag my feet about some stuff and... And eventually that would start to tick up the anxiety, and then the anxiety would get beyond the immediate tasks and into the uh, self-deprecation, the self-hatred. And, uh, you know, you're fucking this up again, you're doing the thing you said you wouldn't do again, how many more times are you going to fucking do this? Mm. Um Sorry to drop so uh, much profane language. It but is. That, that's, I, there's a lot of profane language in this podcast. God, Don't worry about it. Fucking bless it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're also, we're New Yorkers. I, Amen. You know, you know? If, if, you're, yeah. if you're in New York, if you're from New York, and the word fuck isn't as much part of your vocabulary as the word the, yeah. something's wrong. Yeah. yeah. So these bouts with anxiety and then the snowballing effect that anxiety has, it was getting beyond me and it was getting to be crippling. And over the course of three, four weeks, I had this two to four hour episodes, Monday through Friday, that I would just be in an anxiety spiral and not be able to do anything about it. And it was the first time in my life that that really took control. It was beyond something that was manageable. And I was being paralyzed by my own anxiety, my own fear. And that hadn't happened before. And after about three, four weeks of that, (laughs) watching it go down in real time, and of course my self-analysis and this and that, I'm just like, it's never been like this. And as uncomfortable as that time was, is as grateful as that time is, because for me, it took a hard, you know, stop. Just stop it, Michael. You need to go deal with this now. And so it was kind of March going into April of 2019. I 
still dragged my feet trying to go find someone to talk to. And it wasn't until August of that year that I actually went and got involved with a city program because it was accessible, it was low cost, which is what I needed at that time. There was this whole Thrive New York uh, NYC thing where they were trying to partner mental health professionals with your primary care physician and actually do something intelligent like a whole body sense of health. It's weird. A light bulb just went off in my head and I was like, that makes so much sense. You know? For your psychiatrist and your Joined. general uh, practitioner uh-huh, uh-huh. to know each other and to actually have conversations because what goes on in the head manifests itself in the body completely and vice versa. A million times. Yeah. Completely. So, yeah, How has something intelligent like this that. This just come up for the first time in our combined 95 years of existence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's staggering. <laughs> Getting on the Western health ways and methods of, of healthcare, I don't even want to be bothered with at this point in this conversation. There's far too many valuable things that we could be talking about other yes. than stating what's already known. But yeah, there is just a complete and total connection between your mind, body, and spirit, hands down. And if you don't believe that, you're honestly a fool, or, or you're avoiding yourself, or you're scared, and you don't want to believe mm-hmm. that. So uh, it took me breaking to a point where I knew that. This is not what used to happen. And I'll say this too, all my old coping mechanisms that used to quell those anxieties or somehow comfort them or at least push them aside, all those old coping mechanisms were not working as effectively as they once were. And that was the other big thing where I'm like, well, you used to be able to do this and that and that don't seem to be working anymore. That's got to be a scary feeling when the shit that you used to do to self-soothe doesn't work anymore. And then you're like, what the fuck? For the first time in my life, I had to become untethered and embrace the concept of vulnerability, which did not exist at all in my life, until an associate that we know through uh, one of these peer-to-peer chat groups had actually talked to me about that and had talked to me how she had found a great discussion, and it's very well known now, with Brene Brown talking about her TED Talk, I believe it was, about vulnerability. And the way Brene put it, it just rang a very big bell and several little bells for me in that this is actually an asset. This is actually an assessment and a time for you to take your foot off the gas and, if not break, to at least coast and don't put pressure on yourself. I mean, going back to being a New Yorker, there is no vulnerability. No, you got to be a hard ass all the time, particularly in the era in which we grew up. Damn straight. Things are a lot different now, but Mm -hmm. we're five years, six years apart in age, so we grew up in roughly the same time period. And going through New York City as a young person, not even a young person, as anybody in the 80s and 90s, you had to be a hard motherfucker. Yeah. You couldn't smile. You couldn't be yep. weak because you would get preyed upon. Completely preyed upon. Yeah. And then professionally, you know, it, it's it's just fact of the matter, and everybody who's listening can argue this if they like, but in a lot of circles, New York tends to be kind of the center of the world. Because mm-hmm. to Sinatra this for a minute, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. <laughs> and no matter how many times 9-11 happens or the pandemic and we're in the hottest spot in town for, and everyone's running away to the country, 
everybody continues to come back to this town for some unknown reason, some folklore, yeah. some idea. So if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. New York, New York so, wobbles, but it doesn't fall down. You're damn right. <laughs> and this goes back to the, the James Brown and the Ray Charles camps, you know. If you don't like it, there's a line out the door. People are very happy to take your position. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is professionally in New York mm -hmm. as well. So there's the whole personal cultural thing that happens in your neighborhoods, in your communities, and on the streets. And then there's the whole professional thing. And then let's get into the personal thing. And let's talk about the families and how our families, largely immigrants that came out of this area, you had to be tough in order to survive. And they didn't have the parental handbooks. Those things have only started to come into existence in the last, what, 10, 20 years. They didn't know any better. And they're dealing in most of the time with generational trauma. So they are dealing with how they were raised and they understand parts of that and not other parts of it. And they're trying to do the best they can. But there's that whole tough love and that... that preparing you for the real world. Preparing you for the real world. And also that shit don't play in this house. Right. That type of, you got schooled pretty quick, you know? So you're getting it from all sides. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to be vulnerable. So it just wasn't even in my words at all. I knew what it was, and it was a weakness. Contrary to that, getting educated on it, it's actually an asset. And, and some will dare say that it's your greatest asset. And the more I get comfortable with vulnerability, which is an ongoing process <laughs> and not easy yeah. by any means, and it is a practice like any other practice, you want to get good, you need to engage in this on a regular basis. The more I become educated on it, the more I agree that I, I think, and I can't even articulate it, Michael, it's, it's just this thing of, I just know it has power, that vulnerability, and the more I engage it, the more I allow myself to be wrong, to say that I'm tired, to say that I can't, instead of pushing through it. That, and that vulnerability can get you right into self-realization. Self-realization can get you into self-care. Self-care can get you into self-empathy and self-love. And those are all things that a human needs. The self-love and the self-empathy. All new to me, but the more I... Wow. And I think, I think that that sits well in, this, in, in your theme and what you've created in this universe, you know, with this podcast, that it can't be understated the ability to not be okay and to be okay with not being, being okay. okay. Yeah. One thing I find interesting about what you said as I sort of process that in my own brain is I almost feel like there's a, a hardness, a toughness in being vulnerable. Like if you're measuring dicks, right? <laughs> to be like, oh, I'm more self-aware than you. I have these things in my toolkit that you don't uh -huh. like that. I feel like at this point, maybe it's us being our age. Maybe it's the era that we're in now, but there's kind of the way you felt being in being smarter than anybody or being more hardworking than anybody or not anybody, but other people or being mm -hmm. harder than other people, mm -hmm. or being tougher than other people. And the bad like, merit that goes with all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. I feel like there is something about being, particularly for men, about owning and understanding your vulnerability. Owning and understanding the fact that you don't know everything. Owning and understanding the fact that you have room to grow. That almost feels the same 
is sort of like knocking somebody out and being like, yeah, I'm badder than you or, or, or you know. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the space within the knowledge of who you are and being vulnerable is on par with prior to being vulnerable when it was a lot of attitude and piss and vinegar. There's a similar feeling. And I don't know if I, I could see what you're saying. Yeah. Similar probably is the best word in all of that. Because, again, it's like th- there's power in that, right? Right. So no matter what you're doing, it's still powerful. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation about pumping up. I'm so conscious and I'm so present and you're a fool. And, oh, I used to be like that. There's a big difference between I used to be like that, too. And seeing how that person is. And allowing yourself the vulnerability to get to that compassion for another, mm. which is very difficult. It is, it is actually going back to what we were talking about even earlier, that's ego without compassion is sort of the I'm better than you. Feel. Yeah. And where's that going to get you? you? Right. It makes you feel good about yourself, sure. I guess, but that's about it. It doesn't help anybody else. And it's not helping anybody else. Exactly. Of course it gets you. I mean, there, there's tons of very well-off people in the Western Hemisphere that have made fortunes based on their ego, their attitude, they, I don't give a fuck, or I'll fucking steamroll over you to get what I want. It's effective. It is a tool that can be used. Is it one of the most skillful tools to use? (laughs) Definitely not. I'm not saying it doesn't work. But at the end of the day, you hear time and time again that a lot of those people who are successful and this whole concept of happiness in a Western society whether it be through celebrity or not. Most of those people, it's, it's a fake happiness or their marriage is in shambles or their family's in shambles or they don't have a relationship with their kids or they hate their parents or, you Some know. Some combination of that bunch of things. Exactly. And maybe that works for them and you can make anything work. Are you really happy in the core of who you are in your existence? I'm not judging them, but I, I dare say that it's not as rosy or perfect or well-off or this guy said or that woman said or whatever the story is. I just don't see it that way. And this goes back to kind of being, when I when I broke and that, that realization of, you know, once that happened, I wanted to set out to not only make a change, but to make long-lasting change. That was the big caveat on if I'm going to do this. I got to do it for real, because I'll be honest with you, at that point I was 48, uh, going on 49, and I just felt there was just something like the, the inside voice, that if I didn't make that change, and a change that would be long-lasting, that would take me into the next segment of my life, that if I turned 50 and I was still like this, I would likely go to my grave like that, and that's something I Oof. did not want. Right. So it came to a conscious decision, and some people... You can go on your entire life and be in the bubble of wealth or be in the bubble of celebrity or be in the bubble of power or everything's fine. But I would take a guess that a lot of those people who live that life, when they're alone, it's not that comfortable for them. Right. Yeah, I think in order for them to be comfortable in that space, they just have to be majorly self-deluded. Mm-hmm. Right. So either they're uncomfortable and they're conscious and never say anything, or if they're not... They're so full with their own right. delusions. Some, some and God bless pathology you. happening. You know, yeah. God, God bless you. That yeah, I hope it works out for you. Yeah. I, I wish you no ill, but it's like this life thing is not easy, and it requires engagement. And there are no quick solutions. There are quick fixes, sure, but a solution that lasts you a while, 
all of that shit takes work. Right. Right. So how have you been able to incorporate in the last two, three years the the learning that you have done? You realized you needed to get help. You got some help, which solves a problem or at least uh, redirects you in a good way. But, you know, it's not like a, a, a switch gets flipped and all of a sudden you're like new improved. I'm my fixed. Book. Right. Everything's yeah. great. You now have to incorporate the things that you have learned and you continue to learn into every day of the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And and it's not like you flip a switch and you're fixed, but it's constant fixing and readjusting mm-hmm. every single day. That's right. How does that manifest itself in your life? I think I know what you're getting at. And so I'll go for an answer here and, and feel free to steer me back if mm-hmm. I'm not hitting the point. I think it just came to this as I started the process of self-work, self-improvement, it became clear that all of this is work. And I already knew some of that going in, which is why I kept putting it off, because I knew it was going to be work. The wounds that I have are deep, and I knew that it would take some intensive focus in order to make that happen. So as I become aware and starting to realize that it is work, that just starts being the through thread. Where, you know, we can call it, work is a put-off term for a lot of folk. (laughs) I was just thinking that. Right? So, work to me, I like the true sense of the word work in output. Doing something, whatever it is. Whether you're working on a hobby, you're working at washing dishes, you're working on a dissertation, you're working on your job. And this might be a bit of immigrant family and parents being craftsmen that the work was every day. And in order to have something nice in life, whether it's a meal or peace of mind, you have to work. You have to be engaged. If you're phoning it in, you're only going to get so much results, Mm -hmm. right? So as I embrace the idea of everything is work and that is not a bad thing, that's when it becomes, well, I'm constantly evolving. I am not the same person as I was yesterday, even just on a physical note, let alone a mental or emotional note. And that I still have potentially my best years ahead of me. And this comes with age, without question. I mean, this is stuff you heard your grandparents say if they were conscious or if they were real. Or elder people, not even your grandparents, Mm -hmm. because I didn't really hear my grandparents say that. But you kind of hear that, or you hear it in movies, and it might be considered cliche, but it's true. The more you become aware of where you are in space and, and healing yourself and making yourself the best version of you, the more you start to see the line of... I am so glad that I got on this right now. And whatever Mm. that right now is, whether I know an individual who is 20, who has completely changed her life around and is very inspirational. And I know people who have near-death experiences at any age that takes that kind of hard smack to be like, oh, I guess I was being a dick for a while there. The argument I was having with myself and the rage I was containing containing in myself or the dissatisfaction or the less than or whatever, I was putting that on other people. It takes a lot to get to that point to understand that. And that is just another way of work. Whether you get smacked in the face with it or you start to awaken to it, bettering yourself as a human and 
thereby bettering your place in your community and thereby bettering your community Mm -hmm. and the ripple effect of throwing the stone in the still pond. You don't know what's going to happen, but you're at least pushing out good energy or some positive change. There's more than enough negative negativity to go around. You're damn right. So why to engage with that when you can at least, if not be positive in the best sense, at least be conscious and be balanced. To swim in negativity all the time, it's a detriment. It's a life shortener. I agree. It, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in the past year, maybe the past year and a half post and after all of the uprisings from the summer of 2020 even as i think about my own life as i think about what i consume in media be it social media or Mm -hmm. traditional media i never want to be pollyanna i know that this world is Mm -hmm. difficult trust me i know that this world is difficult Mm -hmm. i never want to be one of those toxically positive people who's like you'll get through it like blah 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 everything's great but i do think that There are mindsets that lead to negativity that are super, super damaging and harmful. Whether it's being unnecessarily critical of things, like yucking other people's yums, or whether it's gossip. They're just these things that we can stop doing Mm -hmm. that ultimately create a more positive experience Mm -hmm. for ourselves and create a more positive experience for others. And... I I think about that a lot, and sometimes I'm like, is that toxic positivity? But again, it doesn't feel like I'm not ignoring or discounting the fact that the world is a pretty fucked up place right now. I'm trying to get by in this world that is fucked up Mm -hmm. without putting myself and the people around me in a more fucked up position. You are a conscious individual. I... There, it, it's easy to be a, a narcissist. It's easy to just feed your own need. Again, to go back to the work, it takes work to want to make anything better. Even if you're not bettering yourself and you just want to try and better your community or you want to better one person that you have affection for, it takes work to make that happen. I want to go back to uh, this toxic positivity thing okay? because I'm also conscious about that too. And it's something that concerns me as well. And it was how you said it, I think, that triggered off this idea in my head where it's like, oh, it's going to be fine. You're going to get over it. And though that is largely true because everything is temporary and things do pass, it's our own thoughts and emotional states that imprison us in time and prevent us from moving forward a lot of the time that in some ways to touch on some of the other things we were talking about in this conversation like uh, toxic positivity is almost like a delusional state Mm. you know and uh, the toxic positivity even though it's well intended if the person is not delusional and it's well intended it's not always the best thing and this goes back to yet another thing we touched on this conversation with the vulnerability. Like, I've come to this point, I feel like we've had this in some of our conversations, that where there's nothing I can say that's going to make your pain better. And trying to be Pollyanna with that ain't going to work, especially for, you know, folk like us. Just right. Like, yeah, good, fuck off. But the vulnerability to realize that I can't fix that and to not contract from the feeling of helplessness and instead just be with the person. This is what I feel 
my mental health journey has brought me to in some points and, and also just already knowing this and becoming re-aware of it or understanding it at a better level. I think so much of this life is about wanting to make a connection to see and be seen. This starts as when we are a child and we have no words and all we can do is cry or scream or something to get attention. I don't see that as much different at all from many grown-ass adult humans <laughs> that really at the core of it are just crying babies yeah. because they didn't get that attention at some point or they're still not getting that attention at some point. So to be with someone who is having a difficult moment and even if I can't relate, in our case, right, you're a black man in America, I'm a white man in America. You live an alternative lifestyle, I'm a cisgendered individual, right? I think I'm using the right term Cisgendered here. heterosexual individual. Thank you. I mean, I'm also a cisgendered individual. Yes. I'm still getting my head around the language. It's all right. Don't cancel me. Anyway, to that point of just, I don't know your experience. Right. And even if we were the same, your experience is yeah. everybody's that to itself. So just to be there for someone you don't have to say nothing sometimes. Just be like, that does suck. I'm sorry to hear that. It's simple empathy. It is. And sometimes people are still like, because I used to do this too, I'm like, yeah, well, you don't get it. You know, how bad it sucks. And maybe I would internalize that. I wouldn't say it. But I'm like, ah, thanks. If you allow yourself to be vulnerable in that state as well, the one who is suffering the pain, to realize I'm like, this person doesn't need to do anything right now. They can get up and leave. And they've decided to just sit with me and be with me in that moment. There's that vulnerability on both ends. Right. Again, it's the more I find out about this fucking goddamn vulnerability. It's good shit. It's empowering. It's quite the opposite where I thought it was complete weakness and now I see it as it likely is very empowering. Um, it's still figuring it out. As, as we, I am with, as we with, all are with, with lots of other shit too, man. With new language in a uh, 2020 uh, decade. Uh, yes, yes. So I, I want to flip things a little bit yeah, go and crazy. go on the lighter side. Mm. Um, Have we been heavy? Or, I, we've been pretty. This whole thing is. I feel like it's, it's deep. Heavy. I know. Yeah, right. heavy, de- yeah okay. I guess maybe we need to differentiate between heavy oh. and deep. Uh, it's been deep. All right. You have a very defined aesthetic. I, I'm not saying this to kiss your ass. You are very dapper. You have a very like unique sense of style, which not to say that I'm like a schlubby guy all the time. I'm in this moment pretty fucking schlubby. You're relaxed, right? Yes, home. but I'm also sitting at home. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you have a very developed personal style, and even now, like you've got the felt hat on, you've got a fucking hat pin, which I, mean, I just added this. By really, the way. three people I know in life I've ever seen with a pin in their hat. That is hardcore. Your shoes and your hat match. Your facial hair—it's sculpted. If we weren't in New York, if we were in like a Sioux City, Iowa, or Louisville, Kentucky, or something like that, in New York you're just a dude. Mm-hmm. But with the way you dress and the way you look in small town America, mm-hmm. you'd be very, very unique. I stand out in the ground. Yeah, you yeah. would stand out. Where, where did your personal style come from? Have you? It was even like little Michael, like dressing up in like uh, uh, fancy gear. Little Michael was programmed by his mother, and very much so. Yes, there was always a sense of clothing, a sense of 
occasion and the right clothing for the occasion. And I always saw it. I mean, this kind of goes back to, uh, to you know, eight, nine-year-old Michael, because it started even earlier. But it, to me, it's all costume. It's all wardrobe, you know? And so I was adorned upon as a kid. I was put into good clothing and outfits and... I, wore a vest as a child during the holidays. These things exist. Thank you for outing me on whatever it is. But that's not to say I was still, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and yeah. rolling around down the hill and getting grass stains all over my clothes right. and then getting yelled at. My mother and, and my father both had some defined style, my mother even more so. She was born in 37 and she comes through an age of Hollywood and glamour mm. and that old black and white, very well stylized, very well put together, a lot of forethought. She came from that. And there are parts of her for sure that I have inherited in just how that I am. As a matter of fact, this pin that I just put in this hat this week is her pin. Uh, this was a brooch that she used to wear, and it was a piece of thing that I had in a drawer for a long time. I didn't know what to do with it. So, yeah, there's certain aesthetics about how she raised me that have influenced me and in how I am now. Now, that said, I'll go back to another point in this conversation to when I first got on the road and was completely freed, and I can be whoever the hell I wanted any day be a different person because no one knew me where I was going. The only people who knew me was a small group of people that I was traveling with. Right. And I found the power in that. I found the joy in that. I found the excitement in that. At that time, too, one of my running partners, and eventually she and I had a relationship also. She was in wardrobe and would stand out in a crowd. And at first, when everything was platonic, we both vibed on each other in the fact that it was like, oh, you do like that. And I'm like, I want to do like that. And so I would start to do like that. And then, of course, you get two people standing out in a crowd. Right. Right. And uh, that becomes known as the rock and roll party, essentially, earlier on. People will knock on it occasionally and make a comment about an article of clothing or how I carry myself or some jewelry I might have on or something of that nature. Right. And I've just come to this place where it's like, it's a lifestyle. I choose to express myself through how I present myself. And that's not to say that in the middle I had my COVID hair, my COVID beard. Uh, <laughs> showering every day was not uh, a thing at some points during COVID. Boy, when you're sitting at home uh, and you got nothing going on and you're just sitting right. on a couch. I didn't sweat today. I didn't engage in anything right. that made like me I dirty. I in no still... physical activity whatsoever. Exactly. What's doubly interesting to me is that I think back to all of the shows that I've been to and I look at the text and there's a uniform. Mm -hmm. It's either a t-shirt or mm -hmm. a plaid shirt with dirty jeans mm -hmm. and converse mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is. And you definitely do not fit that uh, motif at all. Okay. For decades I did. Because you do what, what you see. And uh, that's what I saw. And it would get to a point where I didn't feel good about it I felt there was something more. I, I think this is a lot, probably, of what goes on in my life, is that I always feel that there's something more. And when I realized I didn't need to be in the same entrapments as all of my coworkers, and this is not to talk badly about them. Sure. I was doing it, too, and it felt right. And there'll be certain gigs where I'll completely T-shirt it because I know I'm going to be humping shit when I know I'm going to get dirty. And you don't want to wear your Sunday best when you're lugging around feeder Gear. cable yeah. exactly yeah exactly and i will still default to that depending on what it is but as time has gone on i do more of the specialized work and as i've gotten more specialized in my craft it has allowed me to express myself to work alongside artists i mean at the end of the day i work inside of performing arts and though i am not on stage performing 
I am still part and parcel to that whole thing. Mm. And this is kind of the ethos of the Wall Street guys putting on the shirt and tie every day because they're going to do business. When I'm going to do business, I am very conscious about how I am presenting myself because that is the very first thing, especially in a rotating cast of characters every day where every day is a new person, new group of people, the very first thing you are judged on is, is your appearance. Is your appearance. How do you look at yeah. And I like to convey a certain message. A lot of that is based out of my own desire to be self-expressive. I like this. Plus, specifically in the rock and roll world, the gear, the clothing, is pretty dope. Yes, that is true. (laughs) And the term rock star has now gone into every field. Everybody wants to be a rock star star. in their their field, if not to be an actual rock star on stage. And fuck yeah, I'd love to be a rock star, (laughs) without question. I am the closest to that now, so... There's also a a sense of representation. I've been referred to as the best dressed tech in the business, and I took that as a compliment rather than a slight. I understood that where it was, well, I'm representing you. Would you not want me to represent you in the best way possible? Mm -hmm. Mm. And that's the way I always saw it. Plus, I'm a creative individual, and I'm an expressive person. I love the arts, and this is my way of being artistic without necessarily being an artist. It's my form of self-expression. I work in rock and roll. I'm going to look like I work in rock and roll. Why wouldn't I do that? I have a license to do it. But yes, it all does track back to me being dressed in outfits as a kid and my mother having an impeccable sense of style and my father as well. Nice job. Does that get me out of the hole? I think. It, I mean, I wasn't trying to put you in a hole. I'm just no, curious. It was just, it was just unexpected and very funny. I, I think about it, and I haven't had occasion to dress especially well in a long time mm. because of everything this, this world yeah. of blah and while I am most comfortable in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt I think that if you put me in a particular situation I have a very specific sense of style but I will definitely lean hard on that sense of style and dress in a particular way which is certainly more put together than you see me now, and in time that you and I have known each other, we haven't had no, we haven't occasions had occasion. to... Exactly. Yeah, but if it's a wedding or, or a particular show or something like that, then I'm going to spiff up. And the way that I spiff up is pretty specific to my aesthetic. To your aesthetic, yeah. exactly right. Which is a form of your self-reflection. Right. Uh, and the way you want to be at your best. And this goes back to what we were talking about. with Putting on the clothes that I put on isn't work it may require a little forethought which goes back to are you thinking about what you're doing what is the next step you're doing are you thinking about that not to the point where everything needs to be calculated but to have forethought goes a long freaking way right. in life and that goes back to work like just put a little effort in and things can be more like you would like them to be on a regular basis it's funny it's when you talked about work my brain immediately went to my job which on some occasions I'm pretty ambivalent about, then I was like, work means so much, and you explained it perfectly, work means so much more than the thing that you do professionally from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. And I appreciate the fact that you popped that back into my head. Because my first impression of, like, someone says work, the first thing I think about is my gig. Mm -hmm. Or if you're meeting someone for the first time, oh, what do you do? Right. First thing you think about is your about is, yeah. Well, yeah. I do a lot of things. Right. What are you talking about specifically? Right. Personally, professionally, hobby-wise, weird stuff I don't want to talk about. You know, right. like what right. is it? Right, right, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So thank you for 
giving me that reframe. Yeah, Cause, uh, that's cause a pleasure, man. This, this is absolutely great. One thing I find pretty cool about this podcast is that I've been able to have these conversations outside of recording time. Like, these are conversations that I have with people kind of in everyday life. And with Michael in particular, this is really just a rehash of conversations that he and I have had over the past year and a half and uh, just recorded for posterity, I guess. So thank you, Michael, for uh, giving your time uh, right before you hit the road, too. So I appreciate that. And being a great friend and just being honest and transparent and open. And uh, I appreciate that uh, of you. And I uh, hope to continue to learn from you. And uh, unfortunately, Michael doesn't have much of a social media footprint, so you can't really follow him anywhere. But uh, if you're a fan of Little Feet, you'll get to see him on tour. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's a talented guy in many, many different facets. Thanks again, Michael. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Love to hear constructive criticism. Love to hear feedback. Would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think would be a potential guest, please, by all means, reach out to me. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe, rate, comment, do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible. Tell a friend, do whatever it is you need to do. And uh, thank you once again for listening. I personally want to thank the following people for their support. Uh, Calvin Williams and Jacob Block, Jeff Giles, and Andrew Grossman. Thank you very much. I hope all of you stay well, stay safe, and healthy. Until next time.